6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 26 through 29. Jeremiah is uh, one of the longest books in the Old Testament. He's also regarded by many scholars as the spiritual, one of the spiritual giants of the Old Testament. Jeremiah, preaching to Judah and Jerusalem at a very troubled time. Uh, prior to and the early part of the uh, Babylonian captivity. Many lessons here of great interest to us prophetically, because as we're going to unfold in subsequent chapters, the timing of the three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar impacts you and I today. The, uh, the battle of Karshemesh, which in which Nebuchadnezzar rules the world, was one of the major turning points in all history. It's of interest to you and I because it starts the times of the Gentiles, which Jesus himself refers to. And uh, so we have much interest in this, we're going to learn much in subsequent chapters of Jeremiah that impacts you and I. The main burden of Jeremiah, though, is a moral one, a national one. His frustration being called of God to witness to his nation, the, the certainty of their judgment, and a, a very tough spot for Jeremiah to be in. He never flinches from that message. In fact, we're going to see that he is going to be on trial in this chapter for heresy. We normally think of trials for heresy. We associate that with the Spanish Inquisition. That's or the, the I shouldn't say Spanish, the, the Inquisition General that uh, hit Europe. We think of heresy trials in a perhaps a, a Western civilization sense. Well, here we're going to find one in the book of Jeremiah. And by the way, this is not the first heresy trial in the scripture. I suppose in that using that definition, there'd be many. The one that's perhaps most important to you in a sense is the one that has to do with Naboth's vineyard. Remember Queen Jezebel and Ahab? And Queen then for Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard so bad, Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. And Queen Jezebel says, don't sweat it, I'll handle it. So she has Naboth falsely accused of heresy, tried and put to death, and then takes over the vineyard and gives it to her husband, the King Ahab, and says, see, I can handle it for you. Now, why do we make a big to-do of that? Only because none other than Jesus Christ makes reference to that in the letter to Thyatira, in the seven letters of seven churches. And so that gives us a clue as to what Thyatira is really all about and uh, you know, the whole business of, of um, uh, sequestering lands through uh, uh, theological uh, trials is an is a interesting thing. If you're wondering what that's all about, I encourage you to get the tapes on the seven letters to seven churches where we develop all that. But here in Jeremiah, we have another heresy trial forthcoming, heresy trial uh, falsely so-called. But let's uh, jump in. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 1. And by the way, I've warned you many times, but let me just comment again. These are not in chronological order. Jeremiah is a compilation of assorted messages and things. So 
It happens that this actually occurs before chapter 25. We could spend a lot of time sorting through the uh, chapters of Jeremiah, trying to put them in order. Uh, some of it we'd find a lot of agreement on among scholars, and some of it still debated, none of it really relevant to you, to you and I in the sense of understanding the message. Because where it's important, the Holy Spirit dates the letter, and uh, in terms of which king and when, Jeremiah actually spans five kings, Josiah, the revival of Josiah, and then the subsequent kings. We've reviewed that before, and before it's over, we'll review it again, and we'll take the time now. But in any case, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, came this word from the Lord saying, now first, a couple of small points. Um, in the beginning of the reign, don't be misled by that if you're really concerned about chronology. The Hebrew grammar really means in the first half. It's translated appropriately as in the beginning of the reign, but the Hebrew idiom that's used connotatively means in the first half. So it actually gives you a lot of variability as to the actual timing. I don't think you and I are particularly concerned about that. We're more concerned with what's really going on. Um, in, the, in any case, uh, during this time came this word from the Lord saying, okay. Oh, well, incidentally, one other thing before we get in that I meant by background. Um, we're entering a section from 26 through about chapter 45 that combine all kinds of events in the life of Jeremiah. That is, combines them by topics or ideas. So we're going to find more and more narrative, but not necessarily chronological. You may recall when we were in chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah conducted what we called then his temple address. And um, he uh, very publicly um, stood at the outer court of the temple. And it was apparently at a major feast time when there were lots of people there, a feast day of some kind, unspecified. He gives his presentation. Now, his presentation, as you know by now, was not very popular. Uh, Judah was in a, a time of power transition. There was Egypt to the south, and there was Babylon really to the east, but for, from their point of view, from the north because that was the path that Babylon would take to get there. Um, and uh, uh, they had the false prophets constantly saying that everything's going to be okay, the Lord is going to protect us. And uh, Jeremiah's message from the Lord was, no, he's not. And the Lord has raised up Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians to be his instrument in judging Judah for their idol worship and, their, and so on. And so uh, that was obviously a very unpopular message. It was regarded as treasonous, and we're going to get into that here. What made it even more complicated, and we're going to see a lot of that in the subsequent chapters, there were false prophets saying, no, Lord is going to, they were arguing against him, saying that the Lord is going to deliver Judah like he always has. Hang in there, trust the Lord, everything's going to be fine. The Babylonians are going to get put down. This was motivated in part by a leadership in the court that wanted to make alliances with Egypt against the Babylonians. And Jeremiah kept saying, don't do it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to prevail. God is raising him up as a judgment instrument and so on. This message that was mentioned in chapter 7 is summarized in the front of chapter 26. And what 26 deals with is not the message, but some events that were precipitated by that message. So if you recall, if we were going to somehow organize this in a more tangible outline, we would read chapter 7, get the message, and then see what happened as a result of it. 
but I'm going to rely on your your um, memories that uh, Jeremiah really let him have it there at the temple, and uh, 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 you're going to see that uh, he uh, <laughs> stirs up a lot of trouble. So uh, the first few three verses will summarize his temple address. The first verse two and three, in effect, is a summary of chapter seven that we read earlier. Verse 2, thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command thee and speak unto them, diminish not a word. Diminish, in other words, don't pull your punches. Give them everything I tell you, Jeremiah. Now he says, speak unto all the cities of Judah. That may seem strange. How can you do that from the temple? You can do that any Passover, any, any um, uh, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, I guess it's Feast of Trumpets. We call that Rosh Hashanah because it's the uh, Jewish New Year, but the real the, the ecclesiastical name is the Feast of Anyway, those three, there are three feasts, Passover and the other two, that are, if you were an able-bodied male, you were required to go up to Jerusalem to recognize the feast. So on those particular days, uh, those three particular feasts of the seven Mosaic feasts, those three were required by law to be attended. And as a result, Jerusalem was overrun with tourists, people from the far further cities coming there to worship. So it's on that kind of a um, festive day that is where the Lord uh, tells Jeremiah to go into the outer court and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship the Lord's house. Verse 3, if so be they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, if ye will not hearken unto me to walk in my law which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants the prophets whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened. Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse. This I'll make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking those uh, these words in the house of the Lord. Uh, and obviously these first six verses are a praise, as I say, of chapter 7. One comment about Shiloh. Uh, I'll make this house like Shiloh. You probably may recall from your study in Genesis 49, 10, and elsewhere, the term Shiloh can mean in certain contexts. It's a messianic phrase. It's not so used here. Shiloh is an actual location. It's historically relevant to Israel because it was the seat of the tabernacle when they came into the land. The, the, uh, not the, uh, well, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was at, tabernacle, was at uh, Shiloh until... Uh, Finally, of course, ultimately it moves into Solomon's temple. But the, the, the Shiloh uh, location was where the ark rested. It's con the connotation here is, is that Shiloh was one of the holy places. Obviously, the Ark of the Covenant rested there when they entered the land. Shiloh was in desolation at the time he's saying this. And the, what, the, what the suggestion is, is that Jerusalem, even though They've got the temple and all of this. That is, it's going to be desolate, just like Shiloh is desolate. Shiloh had the Ark of the Covenant. Terrific. What good does it do him now? Jerusalem will be the same way. Now, there is a parallel 
that I was going to actually leave to later, but I'll, you know, I'll put it in right now. There is, we'll notice as we go through here later, uh, we're going to see that there's an attitude among the priests and the people that the Lord won't let anything happen to them because that's the temple is there. And the scholars refer to this as the temple fetish. This notion that the temple is some kind of talisman, the, the notion that because God established the, the temple of Solomon there in Jerusalem, nothing, the, God might beat him up a little bit, but not really that anything too bad happened because after all, that's his house. And part of Jeremiah's burden is to get across the idea that don't matter. Ezekiel, of course, who's writing at this time, describes the Shekinah glory leaving the Holy of Holies. He describes how it physically was seen leaving, it hovered over the corner and then left. The same cloud that probably two men in white and the group of people saw in Acts chapter 1 some time later. But the point is God did leave the temple, and indeed it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and so forth. Now, there is an analogy that uh, should not be lost on us. Jeremiah was had the painful burden of being a prophet to a dying nation. God was saying through Jeremiah again and again and again in so many different ways that Judah, you haven't listened, you haven't learned, you will not do my ways, you are not being true to your calling. You should have learned from the northern kingdom, Israel, a hundred years before, had gone into idol worship and was ultimately judged by the Assyrians and taken into captivity and is gone. Judah, your burden is even greater because you should have learned you haven't. God raised the enemies of Judah, namely the Babylonians, to be his instrument of judgment. And Judah took false confidence in the fact that they had this, the temple was there and God wouldn't certainly let anything happen to that. Wrong. What's the analogy? Well, the United States has been, has been founded as a Christian nation. Its whole history uh, is, is um, rooted in that. And if you haven't read The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and David Manuel, I strongly, it would be the corollary text to our study of Jeremiah, I think. I would encourage you to obtain a copy and read it, give you a whole different perspective of the United States. It's the spiritual history of the United States. But the question is, and there are many of us today that would say, gee, the United States was all its faults, is still the Christian nation on the planet Earth. I don't think so. I'm suggesting to you tonight that that probably is past history. I'm suggesting to you tonight that you and I have the painful possibility of recognizing God may indeed yet use the enemies of the United States to judge America. I hope I'm wrong. The good news is we don't have the certainty of prophecy that Jeremiah had. Jeremiah had a very explicit mandate. You and I uh, have, the, have at least the advantage of ambiguity on that subject, and I do suggest that if, uh, if you can get anything else out of our review of Jeremiah, that you spend some time in your prayer closet on behalf of this country. I mentioned the Shiloh, why it's re referenced there, um, as the final resting place of the ark and so forth. Now, in verse 7, when it says, The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord, don't misunderstand. 
It doesn't mean they, they heard them like they really understood them or swallowed that. They just acknowledged receipt, okay? Because we're going to see that they're going to respond to this now in verse 8. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had ceased speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. That's a sermon. Impressed everybody. Thou shalt surely die. Now, you got to understand their mentality. They're presuming that their posture is the same as Isaiah and King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was under attack. And Isaiah comforted the people, saying, Don't sweat it. I know those enemies are tough, but God is going to deliver you. Their presumption here is that God is again going to deliver them. So when a prophet says, By the way, you guys have had it, uh, they sort of look at that as just um, heresy. God isn't going to let us, you know, after all, we're super people and all that stuff. And uh, this presumption that because God delivered them in the past, he is going to deliver them again, is in fact a presumption. Isaiah 37 deals with that, for those of you who want to, on your own to dig into that. But uh, we'll keep moving. So anyway, they, they threaten them with death at the end of verse 8. Verse 9, Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So there, he's speaking there. They take him, they attack him. They, they got a real ruckus going on here. When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. And by the way, that new gate is regarded by most scholars to be the eastern gate, or as he sometimes called the golden gate, it's on the, on the eastern uh, side of it. And so uh, it's the gate of the house of the temple of the Lord, which is the, the gate that lined up with the yeah, whole thing. And then verse 11, Then spoke the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city as ye have heard with your ears. It's kind of interesting that he prophesied against the temple and the city, didn't he? Go back there in verse 9. It says that this uh, house shall be like Shiloh. That's the house of the Lord. It shall be like Shiloh, be desolate. Okay, and the city without an inhabitant. It's interesting that what got, got him upset wasn't the temple, it was the city. I think there's an insight there, perhaps. But in any case, the priests and the prophets, verse 11, said unto the princes and all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against the city, as ye have heard with your ears. Then spoke Jeremiah unto all the princes and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that ye have heard. In other words, Jeremiah is making the declaration that the words he spoke were given to him to speak to them by the, none other than the Lord himself. And that may sound like a light thing to say, except Jeremiah is in a context where he is enduring the penalty of death if he's wrong. That's called blasphemy. Deuteronomy 18 is your reference on that, where Moses instructs them that if a prophet 
uh, you know, the whole, the office of the prophet and, and, and all of that. So, um, so Jeremiah is, is, is not backing down, not mincing his words. He's not only not changing his story, but sticking with it, but he's also uh, unflinchingly ascribing his message to explicit, specific instruction from uh, the Lord himself. Now, verse 13, and he goes on. He says, first of all, I speak on the, by the Lord. And in verse 13, Jeremiah says, Therefore, now amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and right with you. Right, with you. right unto you. But know for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon its inhabitants. For of a truth, the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Heavy trip. Jeremiah is one of these impressive guys. He doesn't mess around. In the privacy of his dialogue with the Lord, we heard earlier where he sort of complains and he's got a heavy trip and once the Lord set him straight on that, he never again complained. We talked about that before. But publicly, he never, ever flinches, adjusts, backs off, lays it on. I, I'm always reminded of, of, of Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 3, his three friends? When Nebuchadnezzar, you know, when, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw him in the fiery furnace? And um, I love the Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the God of our fathers is able to protect us. But even if he doesn't, Jeremiah is saying the same thing. He says, God told me to say this to you. I'm telling you one more time, but if you want to kill me, fine. You know, important thing to remember when you're in conflict. What can they do to you besides kill you? You know, right? That's all they can do to you. The Lord says, be, don't be worried about those that can kill the body. And more things, there's more important things to sweat. So um, of a truth, the Lord uh, hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. This is one of the many places, but perhaps the crispest place, where we, we never see Jeremiah in a better light. It's, uh, uh, he's direct. He's courageous. His conduct is absolutely appropriate, how we can learn from him. One of our prayers might be that we might be Jeremiah's, that under the pressure of confrontation, we don't flinch, amend, weasel word, I want you to know how concerned Jeremiah is in terms of being tactful. Now, then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. I want you not to miss something interesting here. The trial that he's on was in the temple and brought onto him by... The priests and the prophets. Verse 11, then spoke the priests and the prophets unto the princes to all the people, saying, this man is worthy to die. He is under ecclesiastical indictment. It's a heresy trial. Right? Who saves him? Well, the Holy Spirit, sure. But, I mean, what agency does the Holy Spirit use? The civil authorities. The civil authorities. I think that's kind of interesting. It's the princes of the people 
See, it's at verse 16. Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets. See, his accusers are these false prophets, these pseudo-prophets that we've heard about before, and we're going to hear more about in the next few chapters. <laughs> we're going to see them get their due shortly. But it's the people, the laymen, that say, This man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of our Lord our God. Verse 17, Then rose up certain of the elders of the land, and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah, the Moorish height, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house like the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord, and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented of the evil, which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. How? By ignoring this message. Where does that tremendous spiritual insight come from? The denominational leadership? Should they allow me that? Mm -mm. They go on. And there was also a man prophesied the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, the, of the Kirith Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And Jehoiakim, the king, and all his mighty men, and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid, fled, and went, to, went unto Egypt. And Jehoiakim, the king, sent men into Egypt, saying, namely, Eldathon, the son of uh, Achbor, and certain men with him into Egypt. They had extradition there, incidentally. And they fetched Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. By the way, the point that he's making here, he was denied due process. And he also was denied burial in the normal way. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.